Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Osman, here with my friend, Chabruta Ann Gordon. Our DAP today, Masachet Kedubot, DAP Samach Gimel, page 63. Well, today is one of those days where we have a very famous Gemara, so we're going to read all of it. It actually starts on the previous DAP on Samach Bed, and it's one of the classic Gemaras about the story of Rabbi Akiva. Now, many of the stories that we have about Rabbi Akiva have sort of been morphed into one biography um, about him. Um, but, uh, you know, he appears in a few uh, different Gemaras. Um, but this is a very, very famous one. Um, uh, so we'll see some more about him in Masach and Sanhedrin. But this is sort of the classic one about how he came to learning and the story of him and his father-in-law. And so I think it's worthwhile uh, to take some time uh, to actually read it. So remember, so Rabbi Akiva, uh, you know, is, uh, is a Tana who lives in the second half of the first century, in the beginning of the second century. Um, he's, you know, a very, very innovative Tana. Uh, he definitely has sort of his own unique approach um, to understanding uh, uh, how to make drashot or how to learn halacha, right? In contrast to Rabbi Ishmael, they're often, uh, they go together and he ultimately gets killed by the Romans uh, and was a big supporter of Bar Kokhba. Those are sort of some of the outlines there. But that's not really what this is going to talk about. So remember, we're in the middle of a discussion about men who get married and then leave their wives for many years in order to get married, in order to study Torah. And this is probably the most famous one. Rabbi Akiva Raya de Ben Kalba Shavuahave. So Rabbi Akiva was a shepherd of uh, Ben Kalba Savua. Okay, so that's his father-in-law, Kalba Savua, who will later become his father-in-law, who is one of the wealthy, wealthy men of Yerushalayim. And the daughter, right, uh, of Ben Kalba Sabua saw that Rabbi Akiva was very humbled and refined. Okay, now remember, she's looking at a shepherd. Now, I think it's significant that Rabbi Akiva is described as a shepherd, right? We need to think back to, there's a biblical connotation here, right? Probably the most famous, you know, Moshe is a shepherd, David HaMelech is a shepherd. So this story, you know, again, becomes one of these stories, like, is the Gemara giving us an actual historical account of what happened? Or are they trying to create something about the persona of Rabbi Akiva? And by making him a shepherd, it's connecting him to other great Jewish leaders who start out as a shepherd, right? Amrale, right? And so she says to Rabbi Akiva, she says, if I marry you, will you go to the study hall and learn Torah? So again, this is part of the story about Rabbi Kiva that he wasn't learned. He was just this uneducated shepherd. Also, the boldness of the story that she basically approaches him and basically proposes marriage. But there's something she saw in his essence and in his character that had nothing to do with his yichas, right? That is why she wanted to marry him. And he says, Amrle, she says, he says, Ian, he says, yes, I will. Right, So she secretly marries him and sends him off. Now, it uses the word Akdisha, right? Meaning she only did Kedushan. So that means she only did the first half of the marriage. So I think that's also an interesting thing to point out to here, right? So you wouldn't have consummated that marriage yet. But in other words, they basically were, they did that first half of that marriage together, Okay. Now, again, I, I think this is like very radical and part of what the woman does here, what the, what the daughter does here. Notice she also doesn't have a name here. 
There's other Gemaras that name her as Rachel, okay? All right, Shema Abuhe. So what happens, right? The father hears what happens. So he basically, he becomes angry and he basically kicks her out of the house and basically takes a vow that she cannot have any benefit from any of her pro- property. So she basically becomes impoverished because of this. Right, so Rabbi Akiva sits for 12 years in the study hall. When he comes back, he brings back 12,000 students with him. Okay, now again, this is also an interesting story because we've seen the story before about Lagba Omer and all the students that he loses on Lagba Omer. So there's something about Akiva that we see this theme of like sort of the thousands of students, almost in an exaggerated form that Rabbi Akiva tends to always amass. Shmala who sabbat the Ka'amarle. So he hears an old man saying to his wife, for how long will you lead the wife of, the, of, of a widow of a living man? In other words, like, how long are you going to live alone while your husband is in another place? So she says to him, So he said, if he would listen to me, now again, this is, sorry, a, a, an old man talking to his wife. Sorry, I didn't say that correctly. Right. And she basically says, I would tell my husband to go learn for another 12 years. Right. So he's he's basically about to come back. Right. He has these 12,000 students with him and he overhears an old man say to his wife, why are you living like a widow? And she says, oh, I'll do this for another 12 years. Right. Amar. Right. So he says, right. He says, I basically have permission to do this. So what does he do? And he goes back and he learns for another 12 years, okay? So now when he comes back, he has 24,000 students, okay? As opposed to 12,000. So in other words, his students actually double. Right? His wife hears that he's coming. And she goes out to greet him. So her neighbors say to her, Go out and borrow some clothes. Now, again, that's very interesting because we had learned before that one of the um, things that a husband is supposed to provide for his wife is what? Is clothing. And also her father said she would. So in other words, she sort of gets stripped away from her. All of those things that somebody's supposed to provide for her, right? She's given up her conjugal rights by allowing Rabbi Akiva to be away for so long. Her father impoverishes her and no longer supports her. So she no longer gets food, right? She's responsible for her own sustenance. And by the fact here that, uh, you know, that they basically say, you know, you need to have proper uh, clothing. It implies that Rabbi Akiva also did not provide kisuta, right? He didn't provide uh, the clothing that she was supposed to, uh, that she was supposed to have. So I think that that's also uh, you know, uh, that that's also supposed to be uh, something interesting. So the thing to keep in mind that's significant about the 24,000 students also is that this is the same number that we say were killed right during the Omer. So again, is this that he actually had 24,000 or is this a number of exaggeration? Okay. But anyway, they tell her to go get more clothing. Amra Luchuk. Okay. And so what she says to them, Nefesh a righteous man, understands the life of his beast, literally, okay? So this is a pasuk from Mishlei, chapter 12, verse 10. What she's basically saying is, is that her husband's going to recognize her. She doesn't need 
to be dressed up for him. Kimata Legabe, when she came to him, right? Nafla Alape, she fell on her face, come and Nashke Lay Lichare, right? And uh and kissed his feet. Habe Kamidafe Le Shamae, right? And so his uh his you know, his shamash, his attendants basically push her away because they don't know who she is. Amar Lahu, right? And he says to them, Shbikua, leave her alone. Right? My Torah knowledge and yours is actually hers, right? Which is really the most powerful and beautiful thing about this whole story is that he basically attributes all of his Torah knowledge basically goes to his wife. And then the story goes on to say, Shema Abua Da'ate Gaba Rabba Lamata. Right in the meet, right while this is going on, his father hears that a great man came to town. Amar, he says, Azilagabe, I'm gonna go visit him. Right, maybe he will nullify the vow that I made. Right, the vow that he could not support his daughter, but really, since it's 24 years of this, so you know, like he couldn't figure out how to nullify it before. Okay, Azilagabe, <laughs> he comes, right? Okay. Amar lay and Rabbi Akiva says to him, Adate de Gabra Rabba Minadart, right? Did you vow thinking that this Akiva would become a great man? Remember, he doesn't realize this is his son in law. Amar lo, Afilu Parakachad, Bafilu Halachachad. He said, If I knew that he wouldn't even know one chapter, one parak, or one halacha, I wouldn't have been so harsh. Amar lay, and he says, Anahu, and he says, I am he. Nafal alapev and Ashake al Krae. Right. And again, right. Ben Kalba Sabua falls on his face, kisses his feet and gives him half of his money. Okay. Now, again, what's beautiful about the story is Rabbi Kiva does not seem to hold a grudge at all. Okay. Right. The Gemara says Rabbi Kiva's daughter did the same for Ben Azai. Right. In other words, he was also a very simple person. She also caused him uh, to learn Torah in a, sim- in a similar way. Now, again, part of the question here is, is that did she marry Ben Azai also? This is an interesting question exactly. When did she marry him? Okay, but it seems to be that, so, right? So we don't know this, but this is like, again, just a, a, an interesting thing that's sort of like, so, okay, he was not with his wife for 24 years. So the fact that they even had children is interesting. And then that he has a daughter who ends up marrying Ben Azai, who is lives, who's a contemporary of Rabbi Akiva. Okay. Uh, remember, he's one of the four who go with Rabbi Akiva into parties. Okay. Um, and she also marries him. Okay. And does the same, the same thing. Right. Right. That just as the daughter, uh, basically the daughter did as the, um, as the mother did. Okay. Very, very interesting, interesting uh, story. Um, and, um, you know, uh, remember Ben Azai, we often see uh, with, uh, with Ben Zoma, right? They sometimes go together. It's interesting that he doesn't actually have a smicha. He's never called a uh, uh, Rebbe, right? Um, but, uh, but they also have like a very, very uh, sp- uh, special uh, relationship uh, with each other. Um, and, uh, so, you know, there's other Gemaras though, that actually talk about, um, that he may have actually been celibate or not have actually, uh, gotten married. And just to keep in mind, when we have the story of Pardes with him, right, that he goes in 
to that orchard with Benzoma and Alicia Benabuya, right? Remember, um, it says that he actually died, like when he sees. So it's just interesting that here it says that he actually married the daughter. It's not, you know, again, I just think it's important to know that there tends to be sort of like different traditions of the biography, uh, of the biography itself. Um, and, and, it's, and we don't think that Ben Azai, from any record that we see, he did not actually have any children. So again, in summary, this is sort of like a classic Rabbi Akiva story, right? Uh, it's interesting, his wife is not named here, right? We'll see later the Gemara where his wife is actually named as Rachel. Um, it's interesting to see that she sort of ends up being stripped of all those things that a woman is actually entitled to, right? Uh, you know, uh, sustenance, clothing, and her conjugal rights. It's amazing that they somehow had an actual child. Um, but I, there's so much more that we could unpack about this particular story. Uh, but it's, I, to me, the most moving piece of the story is the way that she, you know, he basically says, right, uh, we really see how bold, right, Ben Kava Sabua's daughter was, right? She's the one, she sees something about Rabbi Akiva. She initiates the relationship. And ultimately, Rabbi Akiva gives her full credit for any Torah that he has, he says that, that it's all basically within her merit. It's it's her Torah as well. I just want to go back to the beginning of what you were talking about, that he's likened to a shepherd here, um, because I've always found this image to be, you know, so idyllic. There are those pictures, you know, artist portraits, right, of, uh, of a, you know, Moshe, whoever, whatever, with a with a sheep, and isn't that such a sweet image? And I want to mention that my I have a cousin who spent some time in college, I guess maybe after college, volunteering on a sheep farm in Italy. And I have seen video of what it meant to get the sheep to come in, like when they were supposed to be gathered in from the fields to to go in for the night, and. It's what today we would call it herding cats, right? Like it's this kind of crazy, they don't want to go in the same direction. Everybody's headbutting everybody else, right? Maybe if you could get one to be the leader, then everybody else will follow. But otherwise, you know, good luck to you. And I feel like, you know, we don't usually think about that aspect of Rabbi Akiva because we relate to him as like such a prominent and authoritative voice. But I feel like some of these things where we, where the students are questioning him and he has to kind of answer them up and say to them, like, don't be rude about this woman. Your Torah is to her credit. You're like, like, I feel like yeah, maybe there's something to that, that the, the idea that he was a shepherd um, went beyond this, you know, beautiful authority kind of connection to Moshe Rabbeinu, but also to the, to the stubborn people whom he was teaching, uh, you know, again, speculative, but I wonder about it. Yeah. I, I, I hear what you're saying about that. I, I think that's an, look, I think that's a nice insight to have on this. All right. I'm going to pick up now on the Mishnah, right? For all that we've got Rabbi Akiva on this stuff, we actually have the Mishnah. Keep in mind that Rabbi Akiva is, Basically, his shita, his general approach, is the the thread really that connects all the mishnah. He's not the voice of the mishnah, but his Torah and his approach is definitely dominant. Um, so here we go. We've got Hamoredit al Baala, and we've defined Moredit already in our conversation on the podcast as a woman who rebels against her husband, and exactly what it means. Under what terms does one get the definition of a Moredit? Um, you know, well, we'll see that here, right? Or part of it. Amoredit al-ba'ala, potrin la miktubata, shiva dinarim b'shabbat. 
So what happens? A woman rebels against her husband. She's kind of like just to pay for it, right? Her ketuba is is diminished, is reduced seven dinar each week. Meaning, so if she's let's say she got married as, as a virgin, she has a full ketuba of two hundred dinar, and now she is in whatever definition this is going to be, she's a, a moredet, and and this goes on for four weeks, then she's going to lose twenty eight shekel, not shekel, dinar of her ketuba. Rabbi Yehuda Omer Shiva Trapaki Trapaki. No, I'm not saying it right. Trapaikim. Trap, whatever. Fine. You got the idea. Right? Meaning this is a half dinar. So then it would only be not 28, but 14, right? Meaning it's a machoket from, from the Tanakama and Rebihuda over how much are you really going to find her for being a Moredit? And I think it's probably worth a study that we're not going to do today to try to figure out exactly why it would be that she would be fine more or less. Meaning who's a What's the opinion of the, her finding finding her for more or for less? So the question is, you know, how far can you reduce that ketubah? Right? At what point do you say, okay, but she gets this minimum, right? And the answer is no, until the entirety of it, right? Until the entire of the ketubah is gone. She's never, she's not going to be um, asked to pay beyond the value of the ketubah. But it would mean that she would then get divorced and the husband would not be obligated to pay the ketubah at all. And this might be why some people like to try to get the, to define the women that they're going to divorce as more dote, right? Because then they don't have to pay the ketubah eventually, right? Rabbi Yossi Omer, Leolam hu pochet vaholech ad she'im tipola yerusha mimakom acher govehimenu. So Rabbi Yossi says it even stronger, right? He says he can always continue to deduct the sum, meaning if you keep going for, I don't know, I haven't done the math, right? But you do enough weeks of 17 hours, seven half dinar, however it's going to be, you do the math for enough weeks till she's out of the ketubah money. According to Rabbi Yossi, you keep going, keep finding her for her, for her status as a moredit, you know, from any other money she might have, even if she were to inherit money after all of this has begun, she would still need to then pay and the husband would then get paid, right? For the fact that he, for this, the fact that the woman has been defined as a moredit and he is no longer, he, the ketubah has been reduced enough that he no longer has to pay anything. This is the part I don't think anybody ever talks about. Likewise, a man who rebels against his wife, and this also needs to be defined, right? So here we say he, he is fined, not seven, but three additional dinar each week that he has that status as, as a moraid. And then, you know, over time, till the time that they actually settle up the divorce, he has to pay three, three dinarim every week. Rabbi Huda Omer Shosha Trapakikin, right? Meaning again, Rabbi Huda reduces that to say that it's a it's a half dinar, and I guess that's just his his approach as far as measurements go, right? Now, the question is, what is the nature of the rebellion? And of course, this is where the Gemara goes, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on it now. But I just want to, you know, get to at least some of the beginning here, right? Moredet mimai. What is she rebelling against, right? What does it mean that she's a rebel rebellious wife? Rav Huna Omer. Rav Huna says that she's refusing to come to bed, right? She's refusing the conjugal relations, which, you know, technically it's his obligation to her, but if she refuses, then she can be called a moret or defined as a moret. The Rabbi Yossi's opinion is that, no, she, she's not doing the task, like the, the regular work 
that she is supposed to be doing for her husband, which I assume we would kind of relate to as, I don't know what, preparing thing, preparing food, preparing, keeping the house, those kinds of things. Tanan, so the Gemara here brings a Mishnah that says, likewise, a man who rebels against his wife. So what does this mean? So the rest says, okay, it makes sense to say that a man who is rebellious against his wife, meaning he is refusing the conjugal obligations, that makes sense to, to parallel Moraid and Moredit. But if the issue is whatever it is that she's supposed to be doing at home to serve her husband, it doesn't say serve, but right, the, the work at home, well, then what is a parallel for the husband when he is going to be Moraid? Meaning, what is he supposed to be doing that he's supposed to be performing tasks at home. So, you know, what does he owe her in that kind of way? The Gemara says, yeah, that's what it is. If, so the, the Gemara says that the Mishra was talking about somebody who says, you know, I will not provide for my wife. I will not provide the Mizonot that would enable her to live. So if she's doing things at home, that's the exchange program with Mizonot, let's say, or her earnings or whatever it is, that's that she's supposed to be providing for the husband. In there is a parallel for him as well, namely he's supposed to be providing mizono. Fine. So so far so good. Meaning again, the gemara is going to discuss this further, but the the and then the gemara goes on, and this is I just want to point it out. I'm not going to read it inside. Um, that the discussion over you know what does it mean for her to refuse marital relations. You know, what are those terms of her refusal? And it's not, the Gemara makes it pretty clear that it's not the kind of situation of, you'll forgive me, you know, not tonight, dear, I've got a headache. Um, it's not a one type, one time kind of thing. Um, a refusal constitutes something much more dramatic, much more se se severe, the same way that, you know, if we've got a statement that says, I will not provide you with misonot, that doesn't mean I, I, I lost my job and I didn't earn anything today, so we don't have misonote, right? It means I'm refusing to give you from my paycheck for what we need to sustain the household. There's obviously antipathy between this couple to begin with, right? They're not they're getting divorced. They're, that's the that's the plan to begin with. So um, you know, I don't have much to add here except that I do think that this this status of Moredit or Morid for that matter, um, you know, introducing it into the mix amongst people who are already having a conflict. Um, becomes really difficult. And I understand why it's here in the Gemara, but I I find it, you know, in modern times, I guess, I think terms, um, I don't know, being too much of a of an excuse to have problems, you know, like to, to levy complaints against the other party. Um, I wonder what would be, and it's obviously not a fair thing to say, but I wonder what would be if this kind of diminish the ketubah or increase on the ketubah value where we're never part of the negotiations. Yeah, I mean, it's also interesting to see. I know they focus more on the woman, but there is a concept that both of them can rebel in the marriage as well. Like, it, it does, it's like nobody's blameless. Like, we, they are open to uh, that everybody can, uh, you know, uh, that everybody could behave badly. Yes. And the one other thing I would note is that this kind of rebellion, I understand that there's a machloket. Are we talking about Tashmisha Mita? Are we talking about the marital better? Are we talking about something else? And 
the something else gets a lot of discussion here, right? In terms of how could it be that the man would be a Moray? But it's interesting, right? That the that the first line of rebellion is raised in terms of well, it's why we call it marital relations, right? Like this is supposed to be a component part of the of the intimacy between husband and wife. And if one of them is refuses is refusing to sleep with the other, that's already a, you know again like a different kind of of conflict than simply, I don't know, an argument, right? Like it, it's it's been elevated in. I don't know that we're going to say this is to some extent the essence of the marriage. Obviously, it's not all there is to it, but it's treated as the essence of the marriage in according to that view. Yeah, well, it's by by getting married, it allows you that right with the other person. So if you're going to deny that, then you know it's just like any other relationship in the world. Right. I yes, that's fair. Yeah. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend e. Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hydrant website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP on our Talking Time and Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.